0: Hopefully as we look at 2 Samuel chapter 11, uh, once again we will have more reasons uh, to be singing God's praises. 2 Samuel chapter 11 and uh, reading through the whole chapter. It happened in the spring of the year, at the time when kings go out to battle, that David sent Joab and his servants with him and old Israel, and they destroyed the people of Ammon and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. Then it happened one evening that David arose from his bed and walked on the roof of the king's house. And from the roof he saw a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful to behold. So David sent and inquired about the woman, and someone said, Is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Then David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her, for she was cleansed from her impurity. And she returned to her house. And the woman conceived, so she sent and told David and said, I am with child. Then David sent to Joab, saying, Send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah had come to him, David asked how Joab was doing, and how the people were doing, and how the war prospered. And David said to Uriah, Go down to your house and wash your feet. So Uriah departed from the king's house, and a gift of food from the king followed him. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord and did not go down to his house. So when they told David, saying, Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, did you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? And Uriah said to David, the ark and Israel and Judah are dwelling in tents. And my Lord Joab and the servants of my Lord are encamped in the open fields. Shall I then go to my house to eat and drink and to lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. Then David said to Uriah, wait here today also and tomorrow I will let you depart. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. And when David called him, he ate and drank before him and he made him drunk. And at evening he went out to lie on his bed with the servants of his lord, but he did not go down to his house. And the morning had happened that David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. And he wrote in the letter, saying, Set Uriah on the forefront of the hottest battle and retreat from him that he may be struck down and die. So it was, while Joab besieged the city, that he assigned Uriah to a place where he knew there were valiant men. And the men of the city came out and fought with Joab and some of the people of the servants of David fell, and Uriah the Hittite died also. Then Joab sent and told David all the things concerning the war, and charged the messenger, saying, When you have finished telling the matters of the war to the king, if it happens that the king's wrath rises, and he says to you, Why did you approach so near to the city when you fought? Did you not know that they would shoot from the wall? Who struck Abimelech, the son of Jerobesheth? Was it Not a woman who cast a piece of a millstone on him from the wall so that he died in Thabaz? Why did you go near the wall? Then you shall say, Your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. So this messenger went and came and told David all that Joab had sent by him. And the messenger said to David, Surely the men prevailed against us and came out to us in the field. Then we drove them back as far as the entrance of the gate. The archers shot from the wall at your servants, and some of the king's servants are dead, and your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. Then David said to the messenger, Thus you shall say to Joab, Do not let this thing displease you, for the sword devours one as well as another. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it. So encourage him. When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she mourned for her husband. And when her mourning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Father, may we be displeased with our own sins as much as you are displeased. Help us to value the covering of your grace and your forgiveness more than we value hiding and putting up a mask and a facade. Help us, Father, to grow in grace. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. When my kids were very young, one of the first lessons that we taught them was that it simply does not pay off to hide your sins, to lie about your sins, to try to protect yourself from uh, from discipline. And when they were caught Uh, in, and it had to be clearly caught, we had to be able to prove it, but when they were caught uh, lying and trying to cover cover over something that uh, they did, after praying with them, uh, I, I would usually have a scenario that would go something like this, son, you know that when you confess your sins before you get caught, things go much easier for you. And you know, it gets a little harder when you confess after you've been caught, but it is extremely tough on you when you only, uh, you don't even confess, you lie, you cover over your sins, and what you did was a pretty serious sin, but even then I would have had mercy on you and in the way in which I disciplined if you had confessed right away. And they knew exactly what kind of... um, punishment that they would receive uh, if it was the first time or the second, third, or fourth time in a day that uh, that they, they sinned. But even though um, they knew exactly what was coming, I always reiterated it uh, to them every time. I would tell them, bend over, and here is the one whack that you would have received if you had confessed when I confronted you over your sin. And I would give them a pretty hard whack on their behind. And my whacks always elicited a reaction from them, (laughs) believe me. Uh, But we would not allow them to scream and carry on because we taught them that would get even more discipline. They had to learn self-control. But in any case, um, I would say that was the one whack that you would have gotten if you had confessed uh, right away And uh, I know that that was not pleasant, uh, understatement of the day. Uh, But because you lied, I have to give you a far more severe discipline. And it makes me sad. But here's what you are now going to be punished because of your lying. And I would swing back, make sure it was right on the behind. Whack! 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 Four times as hard as they would have received if they had confessed. And believe me, they did not forget that spanking for a week. And uh, word got out to the other kids, man, it does not pay to hide your sins from dad. It's better to confess up uh, right away. And by being so much harder on my kids when They covered their sins. I believe I was following God's consistent example all the way throughout the Scripture. Proverbs 28, verse 13 says, He who covers his sins will not prosper, but whoever confesses and forsakes them will have mercy. And God's discipline is so much less when we confess our sins right away that to speak of that discipline as a mercy is quite appropriate. But over and over, you find that when people covered over their sins, God had to be much more severe with them. David suffered the fruits of covering his sin for years to come, and we're going to be looking at that in chapter 12. But I want to begin by reading through Psalm 32, where David tries to convince other people, hey, guys, it does not pay to cover over your sins uh, by yourself. Uh, David uh, uh, here in this psalm is giving his testimony that uh, this is painful and uh, we ought to confess our sins as soon as we are convicted about those sins. And I'm going to begin at verse 1, read through the whole psalm, where first of all David indicates that the only kind of covering for sins that is worthwhile at all is the covering that comes when we Uh, have the forgiveness that comes from God, where God covers our sins after we have exposed our sins. So beginning at uh, verse 1, blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. And that is the Problem with David in chapter eleven is that David used deceit to try to cover over the sin by himself instead of looking to the kind of covering that comes from God's grace alone. He goes on, When I kept silent, my bones grew old through my groaning all the day long, for day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was turned into the drought of summer. Selah now Selah means meditate, just Take some time to think about what I have just said is what Selah really means. Even before Nathan came to David, David was miserable. Uh, And God was increasing the pressure until finally he opened up the floodgates. And uh, David realized it is not worth it to keep silent and to fail to confess your sins. Well, he goes on to say what eventually happened by God's grace. He says, I acknowledged my sin to you and my iniquity I have not hidden. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin, Selah. For this cause, everyone who is godly shall pray to you in a time when you may be found. Surely in a flood of great waters, they shall not come near him. You are my hiding place. You shall preserve me from trouble. You shall surround me with songs of deliverance, Selah. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will guide you with my eye. Do not be like the horse or like the mule, which have no understanding, which must be harnessed with bit and bridle, else they will not come near you. And you parents, I think, need to take to heart uh, the, when you discipline your children the way God deals with us. Do not let your children hide or run or fight against your discipline. Any resistance should have its own discipline. I mean, you don't want discipline to be dangerous. Uh, and so you have to teach them to control yourself, control themselves. You're controlling yourself when you give the discipline. They need to learn control as well, and they need to be taught, even when they're toddlers, that it's much better to face this discipline and be brave about it than it is to be drug into the discipline and held down like a horse or like a mule. Well, in chapter 12, God had to drag uh, David like a horse or like a mule. Anyway, David finishes the psalm by saying, Many sorrows shall be to the wicked, but he who trusts in the Lord, mercy shall surround him. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, you righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Hebrews 12 says no discipline is joyful during the moment that it's being administered, but it does produce a cleansing of the slate, which itself produces joy that can only be achieved. Uh, in this way. And so there are applications to how you handle the sins of your own children for the way that God works with us. Now, I I haven't made the outline of chapter 12 yet, so I'm not sure if I'm going to be dealing with this or not. But just in case I don't, I want to mention that God's discipline in chapter 12 was not mechanical and without any heart. He does not just reach out and grab a kid and start wailing on that kid. No, uh, he is a God who is consistent, who can be counted upon, uh, who is a God of order. He is not a God of whim or confusion. And what he does is he sought to capture David's heart in chapter 12 with his infallible scriptures. He talked to him. He, he sought to reach out to, to, uh, to David's heart. And I believe that we need to always accompany our disciplines uh, with the powerful scriptures. Just like the sacrament that we partake of has no power to do anything in our lives apart from the preaching of the Word, and that's a typical reform. that's what the Reformed uh, teaching is, it's got to be the Word and sacrament together. Discipline is not going to have a powerful impact in your children's hearts, it may do outward change, but it's not going to have a powerful impact in their hearts if you're not Wedding uh, wetting it together with the powerful Word of God. And there's a book that I would highly recommend. It's by Bruce Ray. It's called Withhold Not Corre- Correction. I think he does a great job of showing how to minister, not just with homework, but at the time of discipline, how to minister the Word of God together with discipline and make that uh, discipline uh, really have an impact. But back to the theme of today's sermon, the human tendency is to strongly cover over our sins from the time that we are very, very young. And if you parents don't teach your children this lesson very early, they're going to have to learn it by the school of hard knocks, by the providential uh, hard lessons, just like David had to learn that as well. So let's dig into this outline. And first of all, we see covering sin through self-deception. Now, in the previous sermons, uh, I dealt extensively with verses uh, 1 through 4, and we saw that Uh, both David and Bathsheba must have had a fair bit of self-deception going on in their lives. In fact, with David, it must have been strong enough self-deception that God had to do something pretty unusual in chapter 12. He helps David connect with his wrong at the visceral level through a story through Nathan the prophet. And I'm just going to give you a, a by the way on the side that What Nathan was doing there is he was engaging in presuppositional apologetics, both sides of presuppositional apologetics. Uh, He started with, answer a man according to his folly. And um, he did so, I think, in a very, very powerful way. Unlike evidentialist apologetics, which tends to assume that people generally speaking, are intellectually honest and all you need to do to get people to believe the gospel is to present enough evidence. Give enough evidence, people will believe. Uh, Contrary to that, presuppositional apologetics assumes the exact opposite. It assumes that man's heart is deceitful and it's going to suppress the truth in unrighteousness any time that it really, really wants to do something. That's what Romans 1 uh, uh, clearly tells us. And it's because presuppositional apologetics goes to the core root heart issues that it is far more powerful than any of the other apologetic uh, approaches. And if you want to study uh, the, the issue, and I think parents really need to study apologetics because it's not just for pastors and evangelists and people like that. It has application to all of life, including how you raise your children. There is a, it's kind of a highbrow... Uh, lecture, but there's a fantastic lecture that shows how apologetics absolutely must take account of self-deception. It's by uh, Greg Bonson. It's called The Apologetic Implications of Self-Deception. It's an amazing, amazing lecture. Uh, I I believe it's in the church library, and if it's not, I can donate a copy to the church library, but it's a a great place to start. But for this morning, I just want to point out that we shouldn't be baffled and surprised as if it's contrary to human nature when we see a Christian homeschooler uh, starting to date an unbeliever. And you scratch your head and you say, what is going on with that? That that youngster, that uh, teenager, uh, he believed in courtship. I've seen him debating it on Facebook with other people. And here he is now, not only dating instead of courtship, he is dating an unbeliever. What is going on in his life? That's surprising to me. Well, if you are an Arminian, it should be surprising because it's totally contrary to Arminian theology. But it should not be a surprise to a Reformed person to see this kind of thing uh, going on. It should not surprise us at all uh, to see a Christian justifying his stealing from a boss Uh, or maybe not even calling it stealing, saying, hey, you know, I'm way underpaid and I'm just getting a little bit of what I deserve and the the, the work that I am uh, doing. Luke 16, verse 31 says that evidence alone will not change their hearts. Christians can be involved in excusing all kinds of evil. You've heard the expression, don't confuse me with the facts. Well, that expression is really talking about this remarkable ability of the human heart to engage in self-deception. And your view of child-rearing, discipleship, evangelism, church uh, discipline, politics, so many things will be impacted by whether you believe in the doctrine of self-deception or whether you don't. And actually, there's a lot of reform people who should believe in it, but they're not consistent with their theology. And so their inconsistency will lead them to send their children to government schools and not think that anything dangerous is going to happen or will uh, allow them to believe in pluralism in the political arena. Uh, They're not really consistent. And I want you to understand this doctrine of self-deception because it does impact all of life and it makes us realize we need God's grace in all of life. I read about a school teacher who was um, presented by some, uh, two businessmen actually, on an a, a, an investment opportunity that was just too good to turn down. Uh, they promised her unbelievable uh, returns, and she fell for it. They were swindlers. They were not businessmen. And uh, after she gave them access to her account, they took every dollar out of her investment account and skipped out of town. So she went to the Better Business Bureau to complain about them. And when she got there, they said, Why on earth didn't you come to us first? Didn't you know about the Better Business Bureau? To which she responded, I've always known about you, but I didn't come because I was afraid you'd tell me not to do it. Those are very revealing words. And I think they're a perfect illustration of this fact that we can deceive ourselves into thinking what we're doing is okay, all the while realizing there's problems with what we are doing. Both sides of the equation we can have going on in our heart at the same time. And you probably have hundreds of stories you could share yourself. But Fyodor Dostoevsky says, Lying to ourselves is more deeply ingrained than lying to others. Self-deception is the central, the most important, the uh, most common way in which we avoid the joy of God's covering by engaging in humanistic covering. Okay, there's a second way that David and Bathsheba tried to cover over the seriousness of their sin. When the consequences of sin appear, and sometimes they're pretty disastrous, you'd think we would very easily confess our sins at that point. But no, our flesh does not give in that easily. It fights tooth and nail against having sins exposed. And uh, Bathsheba, when she discovers she's pregnant, she is panicking verse 5 the woman conceived so she sent and told David and said I am with child now I doubt she anticipated the horrible sequence of events that that one little revelation to David uh, would unleash Uh, she is just vulnerable she's scared and if her husband found out that she was pregnant she could face the death penalty David could have faced the death penalty too Uh, We'll look later uh, in chapter 12 as to why he didn't. Uh, There's a good reason uh, for that. But they both could have faced it. And she is probably thinking, what do I do? David, help me out here. But here's the point. She did not confess to her husband first. In fact, she didn't want to confess to her husband. She's telling David because she hopes he can somehow fix this. And we need to understand the dynamics of why young Christian girls today panic get abortions. It is this terrible tendency of our sin nature to want to cover sins, and if we can't cover them ourselves, we try to get somebody else to cover our sins for us. Now, thankfully, Bathsheba did not have murder in her mind at all at this point. I doubt she did all the way through. She just goes to David to figure out what to do rather than going to her husband. This leads David to try to cover his sin by deceiving Uriah. And wow, does he put up quite a show to hide what his true intentions are. Now look at verses 6 through 7. Then David sent to Joab saying, Send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah had come to him, David asked how Joab was doing and how the people were doing and how the war prospered. And you can just imagine the conversation uh, yourself as uh, he is pretending uh, to have called Uriah back to get a good feeling for what's going on in the war. And I think Uriah is probably puzzled as to why he had been called. David could have easily gotten this information from, uh, you know, some messenger. He didn't need Uriah to come off of the field. But this conversation is designed to make Uriah feel good, feel important, uh, to be put at ease and explain the oddity of why he's called off the field uh, where, you know, he could be uh, well used. And I've seen this kind of upbeat conversation engaged in by Christians over and over again. It could be a young girl who goes overboard and being friendly and talking with her parents and serving her parents in ways she's not normally serving because she's feeling guilty about some sin, hopes her parents don't find out about this sin. So suddenly there is this engaging in conversation. I've seen people engage me in conversations, spiritual conversation on Facebook, and want to be friends while pursuing an unbiblical divorce. Uh, I've seen this behavior being used by someone who knows he shouldn't be dating the girl that he is dating. And I have witnessed incredibly creative ways that people have to hide counselees, you know, to hide sin from me or to hide it from uh, their spouse. And the Scripture has given me enough understanding of human nature. I know how to dig. I know how to ask questions. But when the flesh is trying to hide sin, you can count on it, being willing to be evasive, tell half-truths, tell outright lies, to try to keep the evidence away from other people. But point four, when that doesn't work, David has to cover for his sins by trying to get other people to sin. First of all, he asks Uriah to break a vow in verses 8 through 11. David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. So Uriah departed from the king's house, and a gift of food from the king followed him. And Uriah is probably wondering, why is David treating me so well here? We're not told if he ate the treat of food that was sent. He probably did. But he did not go to his house, verses 9 through 11. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord and did not go down to his house. So when they told David, saying, Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, Did you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? And Uriah said to David, The ark and Israel and Judah are dwelling in tents, and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are encamped in the open fields. Shall I then go to my house to eat and drink and to lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. Now, I mentioned last week that commentators have pointed out that his uh, identity with Yahweh prevented him having intimacy with his wife. And the next phrase indicates his identity with his, his uh, solidarity with his army prevented him from doing that, and so they say this must have been declared to be a holy war by David. Now, in a holy war that's totally separated, soldiers could not have that kind of intimacy with their wives on the days that they are battling. So what David is doing, he's declared this to be a holy war. Now he's saying, okay, I know you've made a vow, but I want you to break that vow and go sleep with your wife. He didn't say it that way, but that's, in effect, what he is asking Uriah to do. When he can't get Uriah to sin that way, he then tries to get him drunk so that he will hopefully do so with impaired thinking. Verses 12 through 13. Then David said to Uriah, Wait here today also, and tomorrow I will let you depart. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. Now when David called him, he ate and drank before him, and he made him drunk. And at evening he went out to lie in his bed with the servants of his Lord, but he did not go down to his house. Now I understand that David's second attempt was just to get... Uriah confused enough where he'd go to his home and he wouldn't know whether or not eight months later when a baby comes, whether it's his, uh, he would just assume that it was. If he's drunk, he wouldn't remember if he slept with his wife or not. But the point is that David pushes a sin upon Uriah in order to cover his own sin. Romans 1 verse 31 says, when we cover our own sins, we have this tendency to, to encourage or approve of the sins of others and that's exactly what's been happening uh, in our country nobody's judging sins anymore unless they're the most heinous kinds of sins in fact sin no longer for the most part seems heinous what used to be clear black and white this is right this is wrong all of a sudden has become fuzzy God's law this doesn't seem as clear to people as it used to be O. Palmer Robertson in commenting on Habakkuk 2.15, points out that when we try to make ourselves look okay when we're involved in sin, one of the strategies of our flesh is to actually encourage others to sin so that their sin will ease the guilt of our own sins. I have seen Christian parents who have Um, you know, engaged in fornication prior to marriage because they had pursued the dating model and they were not able to hold their integrity. And you'd think that that would make them say, you know what, this didn't work out so well for us, so we're going to encourage our children uh, to follow courtship. We're not going to encourage them for doing dating. Now, not only do they push their children into dating, they push their children into making out. I'm not making this up. It's just strange to me that people... Uh, would uh, would do this, um, even though I know the theology of the human heart, it still amazes me. It's this strange characteristic in our flesh that makes Sabbath breakers want to strongly encourage other people to break the Sabbath, and cussers to feel good when other Christians are cussing too, or voyeurs uh, to want to invite a Christian to watch an R what is it N R seventeen movie. Uh, together with them. Or it causes people who have killed their babies to now all of a sudden be aggressive promoters of abortion. And I believe it's the same principle here that explains why Joab was okay with doing what David asked him to do. I mean, most people would say, no way, I'm not going to mess my hands with that. Why is it that Joab was quite happy uh, to make sure that Uriah got killed when David asked him to do that? Well, I believe that it was because his own murder previously have been... David has spent so much time previously trying to get Joab kicked out of the army and brought up for trial for his murder. He is sick and tired of having that murder thrown in his face. So by doing this, he's going to implicate David. He's going to feel better about uh, his own sin. You've heard the expression that misery loves company. It is even more the case that sin loves company. And so this is yet another reason that we need to see this is incredibly dangerous to have any other substitute covering than the covering of God's grace and His forgiveness over our sins because any other substitute is inevitably going to be leading us down that path uh, of hardening and darkness that Romans 1 through 2 describes. In any case, Scripture pronounced a curse upon anyone who does what David did here. Habakkuk 2.15 says, Woe to him who gives drink to his neighbor, pressing him to your bottle even to make him drunk that you, and then it proceeds to describe a sexual sin. So it's almost exactly what David is doing here, getting Uriah drunk to cover over his own sexual sin and uh, God pronounces a woe upon David. Point five, we saw last week that this form of covering sin did not work, so David has to progress further. He had to use the power of government itself to cover over his sins, and in this case, he uses the power of the military. Uh, Verses 14 through 17. In the morning it happened that David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah, and he wrote in the letter saying... Set Uriah in the forefront of the hottest battle and retreat from him that he may be struck down and die. So it was while Joab besieged the city, that he assigned Uriah to a place where he knew there were valiant men. Then the men of the city came out and fought with Joab and some of the people of the servants of David fell and Uriah the Hittite died also. People think you are a conspiratorial crank if you think that uh, government could engage in this kind of force to cover their own personal sins. Well, you're going to have to call the Bible a conspiratorial crank as well because that's exactly what's going on here. Apart from grace, get this, apart from grace, it is a constant temptation of people in government to cover, uh, to use the government for their own personal ends. And I think all you have to do is look at the Iron Triangle in Washington, D.C. It's so well known that this kind of corruption goes on for personal gain. Now, so that's, not, that's fact. That's not conspiratorial theory. But if, you, if one of those personal gains or personal ends is to cover over and hide a politician's own sins, things can get very ugly. And this is why the maxim, power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely, has been a maxim. For hundreds of years, people have recognized this has been rather habitual a uh, practice in governments all over the world. And even though America has been much, much cleaner than most countries in this regard, there are a number of examples where people have actually been killed in order to cover the sins of a politician in two of the cases I'm thinking of in order to cover over the crimes of a politician. Now, most of those cases, praise the Lord, uh, the politician has been caught, has been tried. But not in all of the cases. During the war between the states, uh, there were some rather heinous examples of this. But even in modern history, uh, we have seen this happening. Psalm 2 says that conspiracy is the norm in government apart from God's restraining grace. It's why the Bible calls for such small government that biblical government looks as close to libertarian government as you can get without actually being libertarian. And David didn't just use Joab for his dirty work. He uses the Ammonites, so he's using citizens of another nation. And to me, this is reminiscent of uh, King Saul's attempt to kill David in First Samuel 18. Uh, you'll remember that he said, well, in fact, let me read it for you. He says, let my hand not be against him, but let the hand of the Philistines be against him. So he's easing his conscience. He's saying, okay, it's going to be a Philistine spear or arrow or sword that's going to be the immediate cause of his death. But he's arranging for David's death, just like David did here. So whether it's a believing Joab or an unbelieving Ammonite, we should not be naive about the civil government's ability to use force to cover up its sins. Government is only as good or as corrupt as its officers. So you've got corrupt officers, you're going to tend to have a lot of corrupt actions of the government itself. And I could give you a number of stories of the government doing similar things to what David did here, but it really would take me away from my purpose in this sermon, which is not to criticize the government. purpose of this sermon is to make sure that we recognize this tendency in our own hearts and that we confess our sins as soon as we discover we have sinned uh, rather than than uh, uh, covering up, because if we cover up, it becomes more and more sinister. The cover ups do as you go pro- uh, progress forward. It's so much easier to confess right away. In fact, I encourage people within seconds of your realizing you've sinned, or, or within minutes at the most, confess your sin to your wife or to your kids or whoever it is that you have sinned against, because it gets harder and harder the longer that you wait. But when we are confronted with the option of confession, what happens? We, we get afraid, don't we? We think, it's going to undermine my authority. What will people think of me? What will the pastor think of me if he finds out? What will the church think of me? Maybe I'll lose my job. And there's a hundred questions that go through our mind. What, are, what happens is our flesh raises its ugly head and it tries to convince us that the consequences of exposing our sin are far greater than the consequences of non-confession of our sin. And it's one of the reasons why we drilled it into our children very young, that our flesh is lying when it makes us think that that is is the case. The long-term consequences of hiding your sin are far more disastrous uh, than uh, uncovering and confessing. A few years ago, I talked to a gal who was uh, weeping over the fact that she had aborted her baby, and as we talked and we tried to minister God's grace in her life, it struck me how similar her situation was to King David's. A situation. She started off actually by uh, justifying in her mind dating an unbeliever. That was where it all started, and she knew it was wrong, but she somehow had convinced herself that this was an okay thing. And I'm just witnessing to him anyway, and maybe he'll come to Christ. And then she started justifying her fornicating with him by uh, thinking to herself, "Well, we're going to get married anyway, and I love this man, and." And and so, yeah, we're starting a little bit earlier, but we're committed to each other. And then when she gets pregnant, uh, she's thinking, well, we're going to get married right away. Well, he didn't want to get married to her. And so now she's frightened because she thinks now people are going to discover that we've been in sin. And between his pressures and the fears and pressures that she had within herself she convinced herself that abortion was the best option for her and it would be in the child's best interest and everybody's best interest. In the child's best interest? Yeah, she had convinced herself it would even be in the child's best interest uh, to do this. And now she was experiencing post-abortion trauma. Now, she came to discover God's grace and forgiveness, but she knew she was always going to have this empty hole in her heart. And she wondered, why in the world did I not confess my sins and turn from them right away? Well, the reason she didn't back then is because fear of getting caught was so paramount, uppermost in her mind, that it completely overshadowed everything else It made her not be able to think of anything, but how do I cover up? So don't ever buy the lie from Satan that it pays to cover your sin. Uh, there are counselors who recommend to a husband or to a wife who have committed adultery, just to confess to God, because it's just going to be too hard on your spouse to confess to them, It's just not biblical. And people say, yeah, but what if she divorces me? She might divorce me, and she for sure is going to think the poor of me. Yeah, she might divorce you. She might think the poor of you. But it's far better to take the consequences, be open to take the consequences, whatever those might be, than to face the far worse consequences, especially to our, uh, our spiritual health. And I'm glad that this particular lady eventually realized that cover-up does not work. Uh, she did not continue to try to hide and cover her sin by marrying the loser uh, that got her pregnant. But that's what Bathsheba did. Uh, David obviously was not as much of a loser, but marrying him was not God's will. The marriage was a marriage to cover up sin, and it did not have God's blessing upon it. Now, some people might say, well, of course he should marry her. Uh, He got her pregnant, you know. He's responsible to take care of Bathsheba now and to take care of that child. And I agree, he's responsible to take care of her financially and to take care of that child. But you don't cover one sin by adding another sin. And people say, no, wait, 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 wait. The Messiah came through Bathsheba. Doesn't that prove that it's right? No, it doesn't prove it's right at all. All it proves is that God can bring good out of sin, but it does not condone the sin uh, in itself. And um, it's much better to take God's way and face the consequences, whatever they may be, than to to do it the the other way around. Um, It appears that God never approved of yet another woman being added to David's harem. And we're going to see that this conclusion is quite clear in chapter 12. In God's eyes, this last cover-up mentioned in verses 25 through 27 should never have happened. They should have confessed their sins, taken the consequences, however serious those might have been. Now in the next chapter, we're going to look at the true cover of sin by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Chapter 12, verse 13 says, The Lord has also put away your sin. You shall not die. Now that is cool. God putting away David's sin. 1 John uh, says that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, even an unrighteousness as he in us as the unrighteousness that David uh, committed in this chapter. Micah 7 verse 19 says that God casts our sins into the depths of the ocean. No man can swim down to the depths of the ocean to retrieve those sins. In fact, until recent times, no submarine's been able to go down to the depths of the ocean. They've got unmanned submarines that can go down there uh, now. But God's point was, it's gone. The sin has been dealt with. It's not going to be coming back into your life. And it's a wonderful sense of relief and release that we have when we confess our sins, we turn from them, we take the discipline, and we receive His forgiveness. It's freeing, it's cleansing. In fact, the discipline itself turns the corner for our children because when the discipline happens, it's like it's been dealt with. Now there can be hugs, there can be, uh, there can be a reestablishment of, uh, of fellowship. When I was in Bible college, I fought God's conviction concerning two sins for two miserable years. And I kept rationalizing, hey, I've confessed this sin to God. And God was always immediately convicting me, but I'm not the only one that you sinned against. Two miserable years I fought against God... Uh, as to this conviction, convinced, trying to convince myself it's not really God telling me to do this. I'm just being hyper-legalistic about this. When I finally cried, uncle, and said, okay, I'm going to confess it to these people. I wrote them the letters. I gave restitution uh, to the people that uh, of the restitution that needed. When I paid that, I had such incredible joy, liberty, and peace that I stood in amazement that I would have held out for so long. I mean... Suddenly, I'm no longer blinded by my sin, and it looks so stupid. Why did I have to suffer for two years like that? And um, even though there were consequences to my sin and I paid the restitution, it was worth it to have my sins exposed to man so that they could be completely covered over by God. It was worth it. And in the same way, Psalm 32 says it was worth it to David. Now, David realizes there's going to be continuing consequences in his life. In fact, uh, Nathan, people don't realize this, but you read this in chapter 12. Nathan says, your sins are forgiven, but despite the fact that the sins are forgiven and that the punishment has been lowered, it says he will not die, God was still going to bring all kinds of negative things into David's life as a result of this sin. So forgiveness of sin does not always do away with all of the laws of harvest. And so this is yet another reason that would have made God's covering of grace so much better if he had entered into it earlier, but better late than never. When David finally confessed his sins, he said, blessed, that means happy, joyful, blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. What a blessing, what an incredible relief. And so, brothers and sisters, don't miss out on the blessing by covering your sins like Adam and Eve tried to cover theirs with fig leaves. It doesn't work. God guarantees it will not work. He says, he who covers his sins will not prosper, but whoever confesses and forsakes them will have mercy. And so I would urge you to enter into the blessedness of God's covering as quickly as possible. And when you do so, you're going to look back and you're going to wonder, Why in the world did I hold out? Why did I not do this uh, right away? Why have I even been tempted uh, to have the substitute of fig leaves? And so as we end this service by singing Psalm 32, I urge you by the tender mercies of the God of all mercies. uh, I urge you by the grace of God to confess your sins to one another that you may be healed. That's one of the benefits that james talks about confess your sins to one another that you may be healed confess your sins to god so that you can be restored and enter into the approval of almighty god let's pray father god we thank you for the warnings the encouragements the promises of your word and i pray that if there are any here who have been struggling against Uh, the uh, exposing of their sin, that they would humble yourselves under your almighty hand and that they would find through confession, through turning from their sins, through uh, uh, any restitution that may need to be done uh, a complete freeing from these chains of the past and that they would enter into the joy and the liberty and the forgiveness uh, that comes from you and from your grace alone. uh, May Uh, each one experience uh, the complete covering and the casting of sins into the depths of the ocean. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.